Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we cover the topic of diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA, found under the endocrine section at medbullets.com. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. A 13-year-old girl with a past medical history of anxiety is brought to the emergency room for nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. She also reports increased urinary frequency. On physical exam, she is lethargic and markedly dehydrated with dry mucous membranes and sunken eyes. Her abdominal exam is benign. Laboratory results show increased serum glucose of 400 mg per deciliter and hyperkalemia of 4.9 millimoles per liter. A urinalysis is positive for ketones. She is given fluids and admitted to the intensive care unit for close monitoring and administration of an insulin drip. Now let's get into the episode. So starting with an introduction, the clinical definition of diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA is a complication of hyperglycemia associated with type 1 diabetes characterized by metabolic acidosis, gastrointestinal symptoms, altered mental status, and serum ketones. With respect to the epidemiology, as far as demographics, DKA often occurs in patients with newly diagnosed diabetes. The etiology is insulin noncompliance, acute medical illness such as an infection, stroke, or myocardial infarction, and new-onset diabetes. In terms of the pathogenesis of DKA, increased insulin requirements result in excess fat breakdown and ketogenesis, resulting in increased ketone bodies like beta-hydroxybutyrate. Moving on to the presentation of DKA, in terms of acute-onset symptoms, remember the mnemonic DKA can cause death fast, or DKA-DF, where the D stands for delirium-slash-altered-mental-status-slash-psychosis, the K stands for Kussmaul respirations, which are rapid and deep breathing. The A stands for abdominal symptoms, such as pain, nausea, and vomiting. The second D stands for dehydration. And the F stands for fruity breath, which is caused by acetones. Other symptoms can include polydipsia and polyuria. Moving on to diagnostic testing, studies will reveal increased blood glucose and anion gap metabolic acidosis, increased ketones in the serum and urine, decreased bicarbonate, increased potassium, and increased free calcium. As far as increased potassium, while labs show hyperkalemia, overall potassium levels may actually be low due to transcellular shift with acidosis and loss of potassium through urine due to osmotic diuresis. As far as increased free calcium, excess hydrogen displaces calcium from albumin. So the diagnostic criteria for DKA is a blood glucose of greater than 250 mg per deciliter, a serum bicarbonate of less than 18 millimoles per liter, positive serum ketones, and acidosis with a pH of less than 7.3. The differential diagnosis of DKA is hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, where the distinguishing factor between hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state and DKA is that hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state will have minimal or no serum ketones and will have a normal acid-based state. Moving on to treatment of DKA, In terms of management approach, patients with DKA should be monitored in the intensive care unit. First-line treatment will be intravenous fluid resuscitation, intravenous insulin, and repletion of potassium. In terms of intravenous insulin, sometimes you will administer insulin with glucose to prevent hypoglycemia. Remember that you do not start insulin if the potassium is low, and administer insulin until the anion gap normalizes. As far as repleting potassium, If a patient is hypokalemic, replete before giving insulin. Complications of DKA include mucormycosis, which is a rhizopus infection, renal failure, 
cardiac arrhythmias, and cerebral edema, which is a feared complication more common in pediatric patients. This presents with confusion and seizures. Treat by slowing the rate of treatment, mannitol slash hypertonic saline, elevate the head of the bed, and benzodiazepines. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 13-year-old boy presents to the emergency department with a fever and increased urination for several days. He states that he has had a cough and runny nose during this time as well as a severe headache. He endorses urinating up to 20 times per day and states that he fainted and hit his head today. He says he otherwise feels weak and has not been eating or taking his medications as a result. The patient cannot recall his past medical history nor his medications. His temperature is 101 degrees Fahrenheit or 38.3 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 93 over 67 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 166 per minute. Respirations are 33 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 100% on room air. Physical exam is notable for a fatigued appearing boy with dry mucous membranes and irritability. Initial laboratory studies are ordered and are as follows. Hemoglobin is 12 grams per deciliter. Hematocrit is 36%. Leukocyte count is 19,900 per cubic millimeters with normal differential. And a platelet count of 199,000 per cubic millimeter. Serum sodium is 139 milliequivalents per liter. Chloride is 101 milliequivalents per liter. Potassium is 2.5 milliequivalents per liter. Bicarbonate is 6 milliequivalents per liter. BUN is 23 milligrams per deciliter. Glucose is 399 milligrams per deciliter. Creatinine is 1.2 milligrams per deciliter. And calcium is 10.2 milligrams per deciliter. The patient is started on normal saline with potassium as well as insulin once his potassium is 3.2 milliequivalents per liter. Over the next three hours, the patient becomes progressively more confused and is noted to have urinated in the bed. He subsequently demonstrates tonic-clonic motions. Which of the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's most recent symptoms? And the choices are 1. Cerebral edema 2. Electrolyte disturbance 3. Febrile seizure 4. Intracranial hemorrhage and 5. Meningitis The correct answer to this question is 1. Cerebral edema. So this patient is presenting with symptoms concerning for an infection, likely a viral syndrome, resulting in diabetic ketoacidosis, which is characterized by low potassium, high glucose, and low bicarbonate, making the patient likely a type 1 diabetic, since an anion gap acidosis from ketone bodies is not typically seen in type 2 diabetics due to the presence of insulin. After treatment, the patient becomes progressively more altered and has a seizure, which is concerning for cerebral edema. To quickly review, cerebral edema is a potential complication of diabetic ketoacidosis that usually occurs in pediatric patients. Diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA, occurs when a type 1 diabetic fails to take their insulin or encounters physiologic stress, such as in the setting of infection when the insulin needs increase, but the patient keeps taking the same amount of prescribed insulin. A rare but fatal consequence of DKA is cerebral edema. The exact etiology is not known. However, this complication is associated with more severe cases of DKA and lower blood pH. The pathophysiology is thought to be secondary to cerebral hypoperfusion. However, other theories are related to osmotic shifts and rapid fluid administration. Presenting symptoms of cerebral edema include altered mental status, incontinence, headache, and seizures. If cerebral edema is suspected, a head CT should be performed, 
The head of the bed should be elevated to decrease intracranial pressure, and hypertonic solutions such as mannitol or hypertonic saline should be given. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer two, electrolyte disturbance is unlikely to be causing this patient's symptoms slash seizure. It is true that hyponatremia could cause seizures. However, this patient's sodium was normal and he is receiving normal saline, which is a fluid with a large amount of sodium and chloride. Other electrolyte disturbances in DKA include hyperkalemia initially, followed by hypokalemia. The potassium in DKA should be carefully monitored and repleted throughout treatment. Answer three, febrile seizure presents with a high temperature and tonic-clonic motions in a patient. This patient's temperature of 101 degrees Fahrenheit is an unlikely cause of his progressive mental status changes followed by seizure activity. Answer four, intracranial hemorrhage could present after trauma with the quote talk and die syndrome of trauma, unconsciousness, lucid interval, and progressive uptundation in the setting of epidural hematoma, which would demonstrate a hyperdense biconvex lesion on head CT. The onset of this patient's symptoms being associated with treatment of DKA suggests against an epidural hematoma, which requires a substantial mechanism of trauma. And finally, answer five, meningitis presents with a fever, a headache, photophobia, and neck stiffness. It could cause seizures in severe cases. However, this patient's initial infectious symptoms are more concerning for a viral upper respiratory infection. To leave you with a bullet summary, cerebral edema can occur in pediatric patients being treated for diabetic ketoacidosis and can present with headaches, seizures, and mental status changes. Moving on to the next question. A 27-year-old man with a past medical history of type 1 diabetes mellitus presents to the emergency department with altered mental status. The patient was noted as becoming more lethargic and confused over the past day, prompting his roommates to bring him in. His temperature is 99 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.2 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 107 over 68 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 120 per minute. Respirations are 17 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. Laboratory values are ordered as follows. Serum sodium is 144 milliequivalents per liter. Chloride is 100 milliequivalents per liter. Potassium is 6.3 milliequivalents per liter. Bicarbonate is 16 milliequivalents per liter. BUN is 20 milligrams per deciliter. Glucose is 599 milligrams per deciliter. Creatinine is 1.4 milligrams per deciliter. And calcium is 10.2 milligrams per deciliter. Which of the following is the appropriate endpoint of treatment for this patient? And the choices are one, clinically asymptomatic. Two, normal anion gap. Three, normal glucose. 4. Normal potassium, and 5. Vitals are stable. The correct answer to this question is 2. Normal anion gap. So this patient is presenting with an anion gap acidosis with a history of type 1 diabetes mellitus, suggesting a diagnosis of diabetic ketoacidosis, which should be treated with insulin until the anion gap normalizes. To quickly review, diabetic ketoacidosis typically occurs in type 1 diabetics secondary to increased physiologic stress such as infection or secondary to medication noncompliance and poor dietary habits. The absence of insulin in these patients leads to systemic fuel mobilization, hyperglycemia, and the formation of ketoacids leading to an anion gap acidosis. The most important initial step in management is to start the patient on intravenous or IV fluids and treat any life-threatening metabolic derangements such as severe hyper or hypokalemia. Then the patient should be started on an insulin drip, and this drip should be continued until the anion gap normalizes and the acidosis resolves. 
Finally, any underlying etiology, such as an infection, should be appropriately treated. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, clinically asymptomatic status can typically be rapidly achieved with proper fluid administration. However, this is not an appropriate endpoint for diabetic ketoacidosis. Answer three, normal glucose level is not the endpoint of diabetic ketoacidosis and patients should actually be started on glucose when their blood glucose is 200 milligrams per deciliter or lower to avoid hypoglycemia while the insulin infusion is continued to normalize the anion gap. Answer four, normal potassium levels can typically be achieved rapidly with IV fluids and insulin administration. Patients should be started on potassium once their potassium reaches 5.2 milliequivalents per liter or lower in order to avoid hypokalemia and life-threatening arrhythmias. And finally, answer five, stable vitals can typically be achieved with the administration of fluids alone. However, the other metabolic derangements of diabetic ketoacidosis must be treated as well. To leave you with a bullet summary, insulin therapy should be stopped in diabetic ketoacidosis when the anion gap normalizes and the acidosis resolves. Moving on to the next question. A 27-year-old man presents to the emergency department. He was brought in by staff from the homeless shelter when they found him unresponsive. The patient is a known IV drug abuser but otherwise has an unknown past medical history. He currently attends a methadone clinic. His temperature is 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.5 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 97 over 48 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 140 per minute. Respirations are 29 per minute and oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. Initial laboratory values are as follows. Serum sodium is 139 milliequivalents per liter. Chloride is 100 milliequivalents per liter. Potassium is 6.3 milliequivalents per liter. Bicarbonate is 17 milliequivalents per liter. And glucose is 589 milligrams per deciliter. The patient is given treatment. After treatment, his temperature is 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.5 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 117 over 78 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 100 per minute. Respirations are 23 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. His laboratory values are as follows. Serum sodium is 139 milliequivalents per liter. Chloride is 100 milliequivalents per liter. Potassium is 4.3 milliequivalents per liter. Bicarbonate is 19 milliequivalents per liter, and glucose is 90 milligrams per deciliter. Which of the following is the best next step in management? And the choices are 1. Insulin, IV fluids, and potassium. 2. Insulin, potassium, IV fluids, and glucose. 3. IV fluids only. 4. Oral rehydration. And 5. Supportive therapy and close monitoring. The correct answer to this question is two, insulin, potassium, IV fluids, and glucose. So this patient is presenting with diabetic ketoacidosis in the setting of elevated glucose, elevated potassium, and an anion gap, which should be treated with insulin and IV fluids. If the blood glucose and potassium normalizes, but the anion gap persists, the patient should be treated with insulin, IV fluids, potassium, and glucose. Diabetic ketoacidosis typically occurs in type 1 diabetics who do not take their insulin and undergo some sort of underlying stress, such as a high glucose load, infection, or physical activity. The initial presentation can be vague and include abdominal pain, altered mental status, and increased urination. Initially, laboratory abnormalities can include hyperglycemia, hyperkalemia, and an anion gap. Treatment should include insulin and IV fluids until the anion gap normalizes. If the patient's potassium or glucose is normal, but the anion gap persists, 
then they should be treated with insulin and fluids, as well as potassium and glucose, such as dextrose, to avoid hypokalemia and hypoglycemia. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, insulin, IV fluids, and potassium misses the opportunity to treat the hypoglycemia that will ensue with continued insulin therapy. Answer three, IV fluids only treats this patient's hypotension and tachycardia, but will not close the anion gap, which is necessary to do in this patient. Answer four, oral rehydration could be appropriate in a patient with normal vitals and normal lab values. And finally, answer five, supportive therapy and close monitoring is inappropriate as this patient's diabetic ketoacidosis needs to be treated until the anion gap normalizes. To leave you with the bullet summary, diabetic ketoacidosis in the setting of an anion gap, a normal glucose, and a normal potassium should be treated with IV fluids, insulin, glucose or dextrose, and potassium until the anion gap normalizes. And moving on to the final question, a 14-year-old girl is brought to the pediatric emergency department by her father due to worsening nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain that began over the last day. Yesterday, she was feeling more tired than usual and found herself falling asleep in class. Early this morning, she awoke in the middle of the night with nausea and has been vomiting since. She also reports cramping abdominal pain that is 10 out of 10 in severity. Temperature is 99 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.2 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 102 over 53 millimeters of mercury. Pulses 110 per minute. And respirations are 26 per minute. On exam, she is lethargic and mucous membranes are dry. She is oriented to person only. The abdomen is tender throughout without rebound tenderness. Blood glucose is measured as 268 milligrams per deciliter. Which of the following is most likely in this patient? And the choices are 1. Anion gap metabolic acidosis. 2. Non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. 3. Pancreatic glucagonoma. 4. Peripheral insulin resistance. And 5. Ruptured acute appendicitis. The correct answer to this question is 1. Anion gap metabolic acidosis. So this 14-year-old girl presenting with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, altered mental status, signs of dehydration, such as lethargy and dry mucous membranes, tachypnea, and high blood glucose has diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA due to type 1 diabetes mellitus. DKA can cause anion gap metabolic acidosis due to the buildup of ketone bodies from fatty acid breakdown in the hypoinsulinemic state. DKA is often the first presentation of type 1 diabetes mellitus in young adults. Patients experience gastrointestinal symptoms, signs of dehydration, altered mental status, and have an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Type 1 diabetes mellitus results from the autoimmune destruction of pancreatic insulin-producing islet cells. Glucagon levels increase due to decreased negative feedback in the absence of insulin, leading to increasing glucose levels, or greater than 250 mg per deciliter, and ketoacidosis from unchecked fatty acid breakdown into ketone bodies. Treatment involves intravenous fluid resuscitation, intravenous insulin, and potassium repletion. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, non-anion gap metabolic acidosis would not be present in DKA. The buildup of ketone bodies in DKA creates an anion gap. Causes of non-anion gap metabolic acidosis include renal tubular acidosis, chronic gastrointestinal chloride loss from vomiting slash diarrhea, and more, but not DKA. Answer 3, a pancreatic glucagonoma as seen in multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome type 1 can result in a hyperglycemic state similar to DKA. However, these tumors are very rare, and glucagonomas present with a classic necrolytic migratory erythema rash, 
which this patient does not have. Answer four, peripheral insulin resistance occurs in type 2 diabetes mellitus. Hyperglycemia does occur in type 2 diabetes, but DKA is rare. Patients with type 2 diabetes instead classically present with a hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state, or HHS, with glucose levels typically higher than 500 milligrams per deciliter, no gastrointestinal symptoms, and no acidemia. And finally, answer five, ruptured acute appendicitis should be on the differential for acutely ill adolescent patients with severe abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. However, acute appendicitis would not cause hyperglycemia. To leave you with a bullet summary, diabetic ketoacidosis is often the first presentation of type 1 diabetes mellitus and is characterized by gastrointestinal symptoms, signs of dehydration, and an anion gap metabolic acidosis. That's all for this review about diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast thus far, we'd appreciate your consideration in leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast.